The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We appreciate you listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We don't do this podcast because we are former addicts. We don't do this podcast because we have loved ones who have suffered from addiction. We do this podcast because we feel that addiction is one of the biggest problems facing the world today, and that no matter who you are, no matter your religion, no matter your income status, no matter your race, no matter anything about you, addiction affects you. This podcast is a free resource for anybody looking for help with addiction. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com slash the addiction podcast 273. That's www dot patreon dot com slash the addiction podcast two seven three and make a donation of whatever amount you would like. Thank you for supporting us. Hello everyone and welcome to the addiction podcast point of no return. My name is Joni Siegel and I am the host for this podcast. My husband Steve Siegel is the producer for the podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five star rating so that when people search for podcasts about addiction, they find this one and hopefully they get a message that will prompt them into recovery or to get their loved one into recovery. We just want to give people a message of hope and let them know that help is available. Please also check out our YouTube channel. And if you haven't subscribed, please do that and give us a thumbs up on our videos. Also, if you ring the bell on YouTube next to our channel, you will get notified when we put a new video up. Today's episode is episode number 277, and today we have an interview with a gentleman named Tim Lodgen. Tim is 45 years old. He had, wow, a 27-year addiction to alcohol and drugs, and, you know, he's used fitness and diet to get himself clean and sober. So he wants you to, he wants others to know that they can recover as well. So let's talk to Tim Lodgen and learn his story. Tim Lodgen, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to sharing my story. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, what your family life was like, and then segue from there into how you got using drugs. Sure. Um, I, I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, you know, my, 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 I had a pretty much fairly normal family. My father was a police officer. Um, he ended up retiring from the police force after 37 years. Um, my mother, believe it or not, when I grew up, she was a professional bodybuilder. Um, so in my family, there was no alcohol, there was no drugs. Um, my father would occasionally have a drink uh, on the, a holiday or a get together with the family, but there was no alcohol in my house. I didn't grow up around that. Um, you know, of course, when we went to parties, my aunts and uncles would have a few, but I, it wasn't in my face growing up as a child. Um, now, at the age of six to seven, my mom and my father did get a divorce. So I grew up primarily with my mother. Um, but again, she was into uh, physical fitness. And as soon as my father left, she put herself through college. She went and got a master's degree and became a vice president of this big company and really did the best she could to take care of me and my older brother. Um, she worked three jobs for years and then wow. ultimately became a, a millionaire and really she really like took the reins and, and, and when I look up to somebody, I look up to my mother because everything that she went through and she never stopped, she just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And even through all of my addiction and all of my mental illness, she would always tell me, Tim, there, there's something out there for you. Don't give up. You know, that you can get through this. She always was my cheerleader. Um, even today, she's still, now that I am sober, um, tomorrow I actually have 15 months clean and sober. Wow. And congratulations. Thank you. And she just tells me how proud she is of me every day. And, well, heck um, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, I, I played sports growing up. I played baseball for eight years. I played football for like three. Um, I actually was almost a professional skateboarder at one point in my life. Wow. Um, I grew up with a gentleman named Brandon Novak, who is uh, a really well professional skateboarder, um, Jackass and Viva La Bam. And now he's got seven years clean. He's written three addiction books, um, New York bestseller list. Um, and he's just opened up his third rehab house in Delaware um, that holds 40 up to 47 patients. So he's really given back to the recovery community. And later in my story, when I talk, he's actually the person that helped get me into rehab to save my life. Wow. So he's been a big part of my life ever since I met him in fifth grade. And we've and we partied together. We did a lot of nasty things together. But in the end result, when I needed the help the most, he was there with his hand out to help save my life. That's awesome. But back to your story. So you yeah. could have been a professional skateboarder. So what got you into alcohol and drugs? So, um, you know, my ninth grade in high school, we had a welcome to high school freshman year party. And I went to the party and there was alcohol there and I drank. For the very first time, I believe I was 13, 14, and um, I got so sick. Like, uh, the next morning, I was throwing up. I had a hangover, and my mom came and picked me up from the guy's house. And she's like, you don't look good. I was like, Mom, I drank last night. And her punishment of the day was we were having a cookout. So she made me shuck 50 ears of corn for the punishment and she, and she gave me a paper bag she goes this one's for you to throw up and this one's for you to shuck the corn she's make sure they're all done before the before our guests get here I love she it. didn't she didn't punish me but that was her kind of a punishment um so after that i didn't touch anything again until senior year i, I like i said i was an athlete i was an athlete and um i had picked up boxing my ninth grade year so i i, I became a boxer ninth and twelfth grade um, I fought in the Junior Olympics and Golden Gloves. And so I kind of like was always just very focused on, on athletics and competing. I really liked the, the competition. Um, senior year, um, I went ahead and I signed up for United States Marine Corps. I knew I kind of didn't have the grades to get into college. And I didn't want to stick around after after high school and just live in this neighborhood. I wanted to do something with myself. So I joined up for the Marine Corps. And senior year, um, I, my buddy had a had a party, and I went to it. And I'm like, you know what? In like seven months, I'm going in the Marine Corps. I think I'm going to have some fun. So I drank a couple beers and then uh, started smoking some pot. And then started doing some LSD. Uh, smoked some PCP, got introduced into some pain medicine. And I kind of kept telling myself, this is just a phase. You know, in a couple months, I'm going away to the military. So who cares? Let me just have fun. Let me get it all out. And you did do so, a lot of partying in that period of time. I would just like to point out. <laughs> oh, it, I, I was doing LSD like every three or four days. Like I, for my senior year of high school, and um, I think I counted. I, I did it like fifty-seven times that year in in senior year of high school. Wow! Um, and uh, I, I I stopped boxing. I stopped doing all my athletics. I started hanging out with all the guys that were cutting school and going riding through the park and getting high and smoking pot and drinking. And uh, I remember my mom coming to me and she was like looking at my absentees on my, on my report card. And she's like, how do you have no absentees on first and second period, but you have 54 absentees from third to fifth period. And then you're back at school six and seven. I'm like, oh, uh, I didn't have nothing to say to her, but I'd go to school for the first two periods. And then we would leave and go get high at the park and drive around and drink. And then I'd come back at the end of the day. So I wasn't marked absent, but little did I know, you know, they took account to, I wasn't there third, fourth, and fifth, sixth period. Yep. So um, that became my my routine senior year. And again, I, I kept telling myself, this is all going to stop in June when I get out of high school because I'm going into the military. And I graduated high school. And that summer, I went into the Marine Corps. Sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman 
a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today. And say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. We appreciate you listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We don't do this podcast because we are former addicts. We don't do this podcast because we have loved ones who have suffered from addiction. We do this podcast because we feel that addiction is one of the biggest problems facing the world today, and that no matter who you are, no matter your religion, no matter your income status, no matter your race, no matter anything about you, addiction affects you. This podcast is a free resource for anybody looking for help with addiction. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com slash the addiction podcast 273. That's www.patreon.com slash the addiction podcast 273 and make a donation of whatever amount you would like. Thank you for supporting us. Now, all the drugs did stop. Um, I completely stopped doing everything. I was joining the military. But as soon as I got through boot camp and I got stationed in North Carolina, uh, Camp Lejeune, my alcoholism went through the roof. Hmm. That's all we did. As soon as we were done for the day at 4 o'clock, Outside of all of the military bases were strip clubs, bars, tattoo shops, and then churches. And I think they lined them up like that so you can get all your sins in and then and go to church on Sunday and be like, I'm sorry for what I did, but I'll see you next week. So we drank and drank. And for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds in the military, the bars around the bases their motto was, if you're old enough to take a bullet for this country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. So their only stipulation was you couldn't stand at the bar with the alcohol in your hand. You had to take a drink and then sit it back down at the bar just in case the authorities walked in. They couldn't pinpoint and say, oh, I saw you with beer in your hand. But they had no problem serving us whatever alcohol we wanted. And, you know, for 18, 19, and 20-year-old men, we're seeing our sergeants at the bars who's in their thirties and we're like, well, they're doing it. You know, we're getting up at three o'clock in the morning and we're going running. We're doing all the calisthenics. We're training hard. And then they come here and they party hard. They drink. So we were looking up to these guys that were doing the same exact thing. So I was very influenced by, by seeing that. Yeah. Um, um, my 1995, about six months into halfway through 1995, uh, my unit got deployed to Somalia. Um, I did six months in Somalia. Now, luckily, um, it was after the war had ended. So this was Operation Shield. We were there basically to clean up and be peacemakers. Um, but I did see a lot of death. I saw a lot of pretty nasty things of the aftermath of war that uh, took a very long time. If not, I don't think I'd ever forget what I saw. So it had an effect on me, but I tried to tell myself, well, this is just what we do. This is part of what we are. And, you know, it, when you're 18, 19 to 20 and join the military, they, they, they break you down mentally and they build you back up the way that they want. So I don't want to say that they made us into robots, but they kind of did. They, they kind of mentally brainwashed us into thinking, you know, we kill, 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 and let God sort them out. And you should have no emotions to what you're doing because you have to be ready for the next assignment, the next mission. And you, you can't, you can't dwell on what you just did because this is what you do. And I had that mentality and, and I took it to the extreme. I mean, I, anytime we did anything in the Marines, I was in the top five of my class doing whatever it was. I was always, always extreme. 
You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. We appreciate you listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We don't do this podcast because we are former addicts. We don't do this podcast because we have loved ones who have suffered from addiction. We do this podcast because we feel that addiction is one of the biggest problems facing the world today, and that no matter who you are, no matter your religion, no matter your income status, no matter your race, no matter anything about you, addiction affects you. This podcast is a free resource for anybody looking for help with addiction. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com slash the addiction podcast 273. That's www.patreon.com slash the Addiction Podcast 273, and make a donation of whatever amount you would like. Thank you for supporting us. Hmm. Um, and I, I did, I get out, I did two and a half years in the Marines instead of out of four because um, on my two and a half year, I broke my ankle running to the bathroom and I stepped in a hole and I broke my ankle severely. And they wanted to do surgery on me. And I'm like, nah, I'm 20 years old. I don't want surgery. So they opted to have me, uh, I could get out as an honorable discharge. So I get out and, I, and my mom brings me back home. She said, you can stay here. You know, you're 20, you got nothing going on. I'm like, okay. So the first month I get home, I'm like, oh, this is great, man. I don't have to get up at three o'clock in the morning. I don't have to make my bed. I don't have to wear a certain military uniform. And I really love the first month coming home because it was kind of like a, a distressing period. The second month coming home, I started to think about, oh shit, well, I'm 20 years old. I'm back at my mom's house. I'm not in the military anymore. I got to start looking for a job. I got to start getting looking to get a car to get myself around. I got to start paying bills. And the amount of pressure that I started to feel really got to me. the third month I was home, I got into a severe depression. Um, and I'm going to back up a tiny bit. When I was the age of 14, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, one manic depressant. I was never put on medicines all through high school, none of that. And I couldn't tell the Marines that I had bipolar disorder or else I wouldn't have been able to get into the military. So from the age of 14 to 20, I never took any medicines that I was supposed to be taken to counteract my bipolar manic depressant. So that third month when I got home, I got severely depressed. Uh, I stopped showering. I stopped combing my hair. I stopped shaving. And I found myself one day in my bedroom. I had went into my stepfather's armoire and I pulled his gun out. And I sat it on my lap and I contemplated using it. And I was sitting there staring at it. And uh, luckily at that time, I had, had a girlfriend and I called her and I told her what I was doing. I told her how depressed I was. And within five minutes, she was at my house and she took it from me and put it back. Um, I told my mother that I was severely depressed and sad. I never told her that I went and got my stepfather's gun because I knew she would have had me committed. Yeah. But what but what she did do was she got me to the doctors immediately. They reassessed my situation and they did confirm, yes, you have bipolar one manic depressive disorder. We need to get you on some medicine. So they started to get me on medicine. Well, I started to drink again. I started to smoke pot again. So the medicines that they were putting me on were not working. But I, I also wasn't telling them that I started to drink again and I started to smoke pot again. So every time I would go back for a checkup every 30, 60, 90 days or whatever checkup that they want me to come, I would simply say the medicine is not working. I don't know what's going on, but I still feel the same way. Little did I know that 
when they put you on these medicines, it specifically says, do not use drugs or alcohol. It may intensify or nullify the effect. So the medicines that they were giving me were absolutely doing nothing because I had drugs and alcohol in my system. This cycle went on for the next 27 years. I would be on medicine. They would try to up the dosage. They would try to add another medicine. Trifecta the medicine that three doesn't work and well let's try these two let's try these three get more counseling from the age of 22 till 15 months ago i drank every single day i smoked pot every single day and the medicines never took effect i had three daughters in this time frame and um at the age of 28, um, I had had some surgeries. Uh, and it was about seven surgeries in a row. My body was breaking down um, just from everything, all the athletics I did. I was lifting weights. Um, I, was, uh, I started to fight mixed martial arts. So all the training was just breaking me down. And uh, I had seven surgeries within, I think it was 13 months. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. Two neck surgeries, two hernias, uh, ankle surgery, oh arm gosh. surgery. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. And, Were you uh, married at the time? I was. Okay. I was. Okay. Um, I've been married with I've been married to my wife and been with my wife since I got out of the Marine Corps um, in 1996. So she was actually a friend I went to high school with. Um, but we just grew up together in the neighborhood. We never had any, anything romantic. But when I came home from the Marine Corps, she was actually at a friend's party one night and we started talking and that's all she wrote. Here it is 2022 and we're still together. This will be 27 years this year, 28 years this year. She'll kill me. Yeah, 28 years. That's awesome. Um, it is. And that woman deserves a goddamn medal because. Yes, she does. I agree. <laughs> I have put her through so much and. It's just amazing how she never gave up on me, even when I gave up on myself. Um, she's she's a saint, and and I love her to death. But um, yeah. So I so started, you got the surgeries. Sorry, back to I got the these surgeries. Sur I got these surgeries, and the doctors were giving me pain medicine like they were Tic Tacs. Mm -hmm. And and you know we're talking uh, what ten years ago. So there was no pain management about ten years ago. They weren't as what they're they're not they're not doing now what they did ten years ago. They would just continuously give me the pain medicine and I would go in every 30 days for my refill, my script, and they would simply have me fill out a form. Are you still hurting? Do you still have pain? You know, are you eating and sleeping properly? Yes, 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 yes. And then I'd go and talk to the doctor and be like, what's the problem? Oh, I'm still hurting. Okay, well, maybe the five milligrams isn't working. I'll give you 10. And they continuously did that. And that went on for four years. How high did you get? Were you doing Oxycontin? I started with Percocets and they gave me severe stomach pains and cramps. Okay. So then they went to hydrocodones because that was a little easier on my stomach. But then the hydrocodones weren't doing as good as the Percocets. So then their next step was, well, we'll give you some Oxycontins because they won't mess up your stomach and they're a lot more effective than the Percocets and the hydrocodone. So that's what I ended up on was 20 milligram um, Oxycontins four times a day. But as a, as a true addict uh, of uh, everything, I wasn't taking four a day. I was taking two every time I was supposed to take them. So I was taking more eight to 10 a day. Got it. Um, and I was drinking on top of that and smoking pot on top of that. Okay. Because now for me, my addictive brain was like, oh, now I got a trifecta. I can I have some alcohol. I can take my pain medicine because those two feel really good together. And then if my stomach gets upset, I'll smoke some pot because that will, that will take away the nausea and, and I can eat. So to me, that was, that was a perfect combination of all three. Um, okay. That went on for four years and it got to the point where it scared me. And I actually told myself, you know, this is how people die. Taking pain medicine and drinking as I was drinking 12 pack a day. So I was taking eight to 10, 20 milligram oxycontins and drinking a 12 pack of beer today and smoking pot. Now the pot doesn't kill you. 
But the damn pain medicine and alcohol, that sure as shit will kill you. And it will kill you in your sleep and you won't even know anything about it. And um, I got scared. I remember thinking to myself, man, this is exactly how people die. And I'm not going to know it. And I'm not going to remember it because it's going to happen when I go to sleep tonight. And I was like, I'm not dying like that. I'm not. If I'm going to die, I'm going to do it by my own hands because I'm not going to do it like this. And I was sick of being an addict. I was sick of being an alcoholic. The doctors weren't stopping giving me pain medicine. They were, their simple solution was, well, maybe we'll set a 20, we'll take you down to 10s, or maybe we'll give you a three-month subscription and then just try not to take them as much. Well, that doesn't work when you're an addict. It try really doesn't. Try not to take them as much. Yeah. yeah say that to an yeah. addict. Try and only yep. do one thing of heroin, not as much as you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's a typical thing. The more you have as an addict, that means the more you get to do. That's right. It, do, it doesn't mean, oh, well, I have some up on the shelf when I need it. No, it means i got a whole goddamn bottle. I'm going to take as many as I can, and then when I get down to 10 and I have a month and a half left before they fill it, then I'll start worrying and go to the doctor and be like, well, I need some more. What happened? Oh, I accidentally dumped half of them down the toilet. My, my elbow hit it off the counter. And half went down the toilet and I need it because, you know, I've been on it for so many years. If I stop right now, I'm going to get sick and, and, you know, what could happen? Oh, you're true. Okay, well, then you refill it. You know, we're master manipulators when it comes to getting our, our, our drug of choice. Yep. So we would do whatever, anything that we can to get that. And I did that several times. Um, but I got to the point where, you know, I, I couldn't stop drinking I couldn't stop taking a pain medicine. I felt as if nobody realized how bad it was because in true addict fashion, I was suffering alone and I wasn't sharing it with anybody. I felt as if this was my problem and my disease and no one, no one would understand. No one would understand why am I taking so much? So one day I went into my bedroom and I had my prescription up on my dresser and, um, I was about six beers deep, which, you know, you always make really good decisions when, you, when you're about six beers deep. And um, I said, you know what, I, I'm going to I want to take care of this problem right now. And I opened up the bottle. And I remember counting them in my hand. There was 18 um, Oxycontins. And I took all 18 of them. And I went out to the living room and I drank about four to five more beers. And I went and laid in the bed. And I remember saying... Please don't let me wake up tomorrow because I can't do this anymore. Uh-huh. I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. And the pain is too much. And I woke up the next day. Mm. And I immediately went into the bathroom where my second bottle was of pain medicine. And I grabbed the bottle and I threw it down the toilet. Mm. And I remember looking in the mirror and telling myself, I don't care how sick you get, we are never taking pain medicine again. And I remember looking at my, my face and how distorted I looked and, and just how bloated and and just discolored my face was. And I was sick for about a week and a half, throwing up, using the bathroom, the jitters, insomnia, upset stomach, the whole, the whole, the whole kitchen sink thrown at me for 10 days. But I remember specifically every day when I was crying and throwing up and going to the bathroom, I would look in the mirror and say, we can never take pain medicine again. We can't do it. Remember this pain. Remember how you feel like this because you never want to go through this again. And that has been, it's close to seven or eight years now. I I haven't touched pain medicine at all. Not one bit. I take Tylenol or Aleve and that seems to do what I need to do and that's it. I, I just I, I I was fortunate enough to be able to stop the pain medicine myself. But I think it was due to I was so scared I was going to die, even though I wanted to die. Yeah. But yeah. I didn't want to die. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, 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 it makes total sense. Um, but my alcoholism at that point, because now I'm missing the trifecta. You know, right. I, I still got my I still got my alcohol and I still have my my marijuana. But now that the pain medicine is gone and I'm missing that extra, that extra kick in, in my, in my substances. So the beer wasn't enough for me. 
So I, I stopped drinking the Miller Lights or the Coors Lights or the Killians, and I switched to the IPAs, the really high alcohol content where they're uh. like 10, 12% alcohol per beer. Yeah. And drinking six of them is like drinking 12 to 15 of a regular beer. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is doing it. Until I started to gain a lot of weight. And I'm like, man, I'm gaining weight. My face is all red. I just don't like the way I look. So you know what the bright idea I had was? How about I stop drinking beer, these IPAs, and I'll switch over to whiskey because, you know, whiskey's going to be so much more better for me than drinking 12 to 15 of these IPAs. So I started drinking Fireball whiskey. And, and my, my, this is how my brain worked as an addict. It would tell me, don't get the big bottle of the whiskey. Because then you'll know exactly how much alcohol you're drinking. Get the little miniatures. Because when you're done, you can throw them away. And you really won't remember how much you've been drinking. And you won't feel down on yourself. You won't be ashamed. You know, you won't be like, man, I'm really drinking a lot. Because you won't remember. Right. So that's what I started to do. I would go to the store. I'd get a six-pack of beer. And I'd get about five miniatures. And I would find that. Really quickly, taking those three miniatures down would give me that warm blanket feeling that I was looking for that the pain medicine used to give me. And it would be almost immediate as well because I would take three, three, three of those down real quick. And then I could drink my beer and I'd feel okay. I'd feel normal again. And uh, I, w- I, would, I would start to drink them in the morning. I start drinking them in the afternoon. And as soon as I got off work at three o'clock, the first place I stopped was the liquor store. I was going to say you were working then, right? I was work. I'm a carpenter. Um, and unfortunately in the construction industry, there is a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. Um, it kind of goes hand in hand, almost with the military. You work hard, you play hard, you reward yourself hard. And that's just how, the lifestyle I was used to. Um, So to me, it was just, you know, I I get up at six o'clock in the morning. I bust my ass till three o'clock in the afternoon, swinging a hammer, building walls. I deserve a cold beer at the end of the day because I earned it. And that, that was my justification. Um, So the beer stopped. I just stopped. I was like, why am I even drinking beers? I can just buy more whiskey. You know, they're small. I can put them in my pocket. I can take a couple shots of work. I don't have to stop and drink a full beer. So instead of getting four or five, I start getting, they're called a sleeve. So it's 10 of them that come still wrapped in the plastic that the liquor stores get before they put up on the shelves. So I would just simply go in and be like, can I get a sleeve of Fireball? And they'd be like, yeah, and they'd give me 10 of them at a shot. So I'd have 10 for the day. Well, those 10 would only last me until about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. As soon as three o'clock came and, there, and I, I punched out, First place I went to was a liquor store, and I would pick up another 10 fireballs. I measured it one day. One of those miniatures is two and a half shots. Before I went to rehab at the end of my addiction, I was drinking 25 to 30 miniatures a day. So that's about 70 to almost 80 shots of fireball whiskey a day that I was drinking every single day. Wow. Um. You know you're lucky you're alive, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to get to that because when I got okay. to rehab, that's exactly what the doctor told me. Okay. Um, you know, I, I got. I was drinking so much. I was passing out. I was blacking out. My wife told me, you know, my my personality changed. You I'm think? Like, there's, there's no way my personality changed. She's like, Tim, since you've been drinking whiskey, you're an asshole. Everything's. <laughs> Everything irritates you. You yell at everybody. You know, you're very hard to deal with. Um, You know, you got to you got to cut it down. You got to cut it down. And she would give me ultimatums. Can you please just not drink for the next couple of days and just maybe wait to the weekend? So every once in a while, I would take a day or two off. But it wasn't because she asked me. It would simply be because I drank so much the night before. I physically couldn't drink that day because I was throwing up most of the day and I wasn't able to eat. So I literally couldn't get alcohol into my system. Wow. 
But the next day, when I felt okay, the first thing I would do was take two or three of those shots. And I'd be like, ah, there I am. Okay, I'm back. Now I can eat something. Now I can get to work. Now I can be a functional human of society. Um, oh. I, I, it got so bad that, you know, I would come home from work. And I have three daughters. And I would come home from work. And the house would scatter like cockroaches with the lights coming on. And in my addiction, I would think that was great because I get to come home and nobody bothers me. I can sit in front of the TV and drink and nobody's going to question what I'm doing. Nobody's going to say, hey, you're drinking too much. Nobody's going to bother me because I get my free time. Right. Little did I know until I got sober that my family was scared of me. Mm-hmm. My family didn't know which husband or which father was walking in the door. So it was safer for them just to go into the other room and shut their doors and let me be me rather than confronting me for the day. But as an addict, I thought it was the best thing because, man, I get to come home and nobody's going to bother me and I get to do what I want and drink as much as I want. Wow. So what made you want to change? So... The last year of my my alcoholism, I got a brand new truck um, and I was driving to the liquor store, shockingly enough, and I hit something on the side of the road. And I honestly do not know still to this day what I hit. I don't know if I hit a parked car or a street sign, but I hit something on the side of the road and I come home. And I remember telling my wife, I just hit something in my truck. I'm going to bed. I'll deal with it. I'll deal with that shit in the morning. And I go to bed. I wake up the next morning like a good alcoholic and say, good morning. I'm going to the grocery store to go get some milk and water. And my wife simply looks at me and says, how are you going to do that? I said, in my brand new truck, it's in the driveway. She says, go look at your brand new truck in the driveway, Tim. So I go outside and my right passenger tires hanging off the axle. My side mirror smashed in. And I'm sitting there looking at it. I'm like, what the hell happened? And she pops her head out the front door and she says, you have no idea what you hit last night, do you? And I said, I I truly don't. And she says, Tim, you could have killed somebody. You could have killed yourself. She's like, something has to change. You you know what? You can't stay here anymore. I I need you to go leave. I need you to figure this out because I can't take any more. I said, okay. So I, I called AAA. I had them come out and put my spare tire on. I didn't give a shit about the side mirror. I had a driver's side mirror. I was like, I'll, I'll deal with it later. And I called my friend. I'm like, hey, I just got kicked out of the house. And I was like, uh, I need some place to hang out for a couple of days. You know, let things cool over for a couple of days. And my wife will let me come back in. And I could presume my, my drinking ac- extracurricular activities. So he's like, sure, man, come on over. I'll let you stay here for a couple of days. So I get to his house. And his bright idea and his solution was, well, you got kicked out of your house and you wrecked your truck. We might as well go to the bar and, and have a couple of drinks because, shit, you already kicked out of your house and you already wrecked your truck. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, now I have a justification to go drink again today. You know, just another reason that allows me to go and have a drink. So I go to the bar. We throw some shots back. We ate some wings. Throw some beers back. And as we're leaving the bar, less than 24 hours later, I rear end somebody at the red light in my same truck. Hmm. And I get out and uh, I look at the guy. I'm like, are you okay? He said, I'm okay. And I was like, well, your truck's okay. He actually had a tow hitch on the back of his truck. So his truck had no damage whatsoever. Now, mind you, my front bumper was V'd in. It was smashed in really good. And I said, well, your truck's okay. You're okay. And I slapped him on his back and I was like, I'm out of here. And I jumped in my truck and I took off. At this point, I was completely drunk. I knew if the cops were coming, my truck was being towed and I was being locked up for uh, DUI. So I got in my truck and I took off. I get to my friend's house and I'm like, man, I I can't stay here, man. I got to go sleep in my truck or something. I got to be alone. I got to figure this shit out. And I was like, because I I just just wrecked my truck twice in, in less than 24 hours, you know, and I can't go home. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to one of the parking rides and I'm going to park at the parking ride and I'm going to think about what I've done 
But before I do that, I got to stop at the liquor store and get another 10, 10 miniatures because, you know, if I'm going to sit there and feel sorry for myself, I might as well drink with along with the sorrow. So I stop at the liquor store and I get 10 more, uh, 10 more miniatures. And I sit in my truck for 48 hours. I turn my phone off because I don't want to hear nobody's shit. I don't want to be bothered by anybody. I wanted to wallow in my sorrows and think about everything and everyone that I've hurt or disappointed or let down. And I pretty much wanted to have a, a goddamn pity party for myself and, and, and feel sad for all the decisions that I've made while being under the influence of drugs or alcohol, all the promises that I didn't keep, you know, all the things that I, I didn't do with my, my children that I should have done, but because I, I couldn't because I was an alcoholic or I had a hangover or I was sick. And I really just, I sat there and listened to depressing songs and I drank myself to pass out point for 48 hours. I would wake up, take another drink and pass back out in my seat. And that went on for 48 hours. And March 5th of 2020, I turned my phone on at seven after 10 in the morning. This is two days after having my phone completely off, being shut out from the world and drinking myself into oblivion. And at nine after 10, two minutes after I turned my phone on, I get a phone call. And it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And excuse my language, but he says, Lodgin, what the fuck are you doing? And I said, I'm in my truck. I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm drunk, and I'm tired. And he said, good, motherfucker, that's what you need. <laughs> He's like, I just got off the phone with your wife, and I just got off the phone with your mom. I have a plane ticket waiting for you this evening at 8.30 p.m. You are going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're going to get help. And I promise you, everything that you've lost, you'll get back 10 times fold. Just please do me a favor. Call me when you pass security because I want to make sure you're getting on the plane. You're not going to catch a cab if you get dropped off at the airport and get out of there. I want to make sure you're getting on the plane. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, I'm just kind of agreeing with him at this point. I hang up the phone. I'm like, man, I don't want to go to goddamn rehab in Florida. You know, how, how did my life get this bad? You know, and I'm going over everything. And about 15 minutes go by, my wife calls. She's like, Tim, I just got off the phone with Brandon. I would like you to come home and take a shower and pack your bags and, and possibly get some rest. You got a couple hours before you go to treatment. Um, but I would like you to come home and, and do those things. I said, okay, I, I'll come home. So I go home and um, I couldn't eat. My stomach was now in knots because now I have, now I'm having a panic attack and my anxiety is through the roof because now I got to go on a plane to a rehab facility for God knows how long, 30, 69 days. I don't know. And I really didn't want to do it. I did take a shower. I did pack my bags and I couldn't sleep. My mind was racing a million miles an hour. And uh, I sit on the edge of my bed. And I'm just thinking about everything. And I'm like, man, how? How did I get here? How did I let it get this bad? You know, why Why wasn't I able to stop? And I, I just couldn't come up with a solution. But my disease of addiction had a great solution for me. And it grabbed me by the hand. And it walked me into the basement of my home. And it threw a rope around my neck. Oh. And it stood me up on a bucket. And told me to jump. And my wife realized I wasn't in my bedroom. And she comes downstairs. And she sees me in the corner of the basement. She says, what are you doing? I said, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I just want the pain to stop. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I've let everybody down. I, I, I don't want to be here anymore. And, and she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this would do to your children? Please, please get down. Everything is going to be okay. Just please get down and get on that plane tonight. 
And I get down and I fall to the floor for about 10 minutes and I just cry in a ball. And I go upstairs and I call my friend. I'm like, Brandon, I got to go, man. I got to go. I, I, this disease is going to kill me. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I, I got to go. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Hmm. Call me when you pass security. So my mom comes and picks me up and drives me to the airport. I get past security. And I call Brandon. I'm like, hey, buddy, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I got about 40 minutes left before the plane takes off, before they start boarding. I just want to let you know I'm past security and, and I'm going. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back your life. And he hangs up the phone. I go to sit down in the chairs before getting boarded. And as I sit down, this overwhelming feeling of hope Mm. comes over my entire body. It was a warm blanket feeling that I have never felt in my entire life. Mm. It went through my entire body. All my worries went away. All my anxiety, my panic went away. And something that wasn't me (laughs) from someplace else said, Tim, everything is going to be okay. You're right where you need to be. It was the most amazing feeling I have ever felt in my entire life. I still can't explain it, but if I were not to acknowledge that feeling of hope, or if I were not to be grateful for what has been given to me, I would have been, I would have been another wasted lost soul to addiction and mental illness. Something happened to me in that airport. Yep. Something talked to me, something touched me, and it went through my entire body. I got to rehab. And I went full addicted mode into rehab. Mm -hmm. I didn't miss any meetings. I did extra meetings for military and first responder veterans. I did all my homework. I did all my journaling. I spoke at at the meetings. I shared my stories. I helped others at rehab. And something happened to me in rehab. I was asked one morning to come to a pre-meeting meeting. Um, a gentleman in the morning at 8 a.m. would have a couple people put together and he would read a verse, not from the Bible, but from a, um, a spirituality book. Mm-hmm. And then and then he would read a verse of daily reflections and then he would have a prayer at the end. But it wasn't like Jesus based or anything. it was it was more spirituality based. And he said, Tim, he said, uh, if you're up at eight o'clock tomorrow, would you like to come to one of my meetings? There's only five of us and we meet every morning an hour before the meetings start. He said, but it helps me sometimes get my day going. And I said, you know what, man, I'll come tomorrow. And I woke up and I went and I saw him and he comes over to me because you're the first person to tell me that they would come and actually showed up. Hmm. And I said, really? I said, well, I told you I'd come. I said, so I'm going to come. And, uh, Something, something spoke to me at these meetings when he was talking about spirituality. He was talking to me about daily reflections. And that little tiny meeting went from five people to about 15 in about a week and a half. And after a week and a half, the gentleman who started running it, his time was up. He had been there for 45 days and he was getting ready to go home. And in one of the morning meetings, he's like, well, guys, he said, today's my last my last reading, I'm getting ready to go home. He's like, but I really love how this has helped so many people here in the mornings. And I, and I, I want to leave this book here. And I have, to, I have to leave it to somebody to carry on the message of hope and recovery. And he goes, and I've been thinking about it long and hard for the last couple of days. And he said, and I'd like to leave it to you, Tim. I want you to carry on these messages. I want you to carry on this message in the morning before the meetings. Wow. And, and I couldn't believe that he picked me. <laughs> and, and I felt... I felt an obligation. I felt humbled. I felt like maybe I'm finding my purpose here in rehab. Maybe my purpose is to help others through <laughs> through my pain and my sorrow. So I started to read every morning. And that fifth that group of five that turned into a group of fifteen. When it came to Easter morning, my group that I was running went up to fifty-five people 
Wow. And it, it, it was so big that they had to pull us into the conference room and had to bring the counselors in. And we had to actually set it up as a full on meeting because so many people wanted to hear what I was reading that morning. Wow. One of the ladies in rehab was a professional singer. She sang three songs. Like we had a full on Easter Sunday morning reading. Aww. And it felt like I finally, I, I finally know why I had to suffer for 27 years. Mm -hmm. I, it wasn't happening to me. It was happening for me. I had to know what it was like to feel so much pain in order to share my story of hope and recovery to those who are suffering. I, I, I needed that experience. I needed to know how awful that felt. I needed to know what hopelessness felt like. I needed to know what addiction felt like, mental illness felt like. So I can share with everybody that no matter how hopeless you feel, no matter how much you want to give up, you can always change your life. You can open that new fresh page up in that book and start a brand new chapter. Don't give up hope. I almost did and it almost took my life on two occasions. And if I would have listened to that disease of mental illness and addiction, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I wouldn't be spreading the message that I truly believe was given to me from someplace else <laughs> to let other people know that they are not alone. They do not suffer alone. The pain that they feel is not just theirs. So many of us have felt that pain. So many of us have gone through the same things that they are going through. They can't give up hope. Right. They can't. They have to keep pushing. They have to keep pushing. They, they, they have to keep pushing because there is something on the other side of that mountain peak. That's and it's so, it's so glorious. It, it is so amazing. It is more amazing than I ever thought it would be. Mm -hmm. You couldn't tell me my life would be like this 15 months, 15 months after becoming sober in rehab. Yep. I would have told you to go piss up a tree. You're lying. <laughs> you know, you don't. So many positive things have happened to me and continue to happen to me. So it what is, are you doing now? I mean, that's a great message for people, but what are you doing now, Tim? So I go to, I, I did 90 and 90 when I got out of rehab because they, they told us how much and how important that was. And I truly okay. believe that going to meetings every, to do that 90, 90, I actually did 98 and 90, 90 days. So I did a little bit more. I got a home group. I got a sponsor. And for me, doing that 90 and 90 wasn't just you got a good meeting, you got a good meeting. It helps discipline you into doing more for your recovery. It just right. it, it, it helps it helps change that mindset of the addictive mode and more into a recovery, sobriety and working your steps, traditions and, and speaking and sharing your story and hearing other people. Um, it just really, truly helped me in my recovery right. um, in rehab. We actually had a personal trainer come in three days a week. So I started exercising again, which really helped me in rehab. So as soon as I got out, I went ahead and joined the local YMCA and I got a gym membership. And my day consists of going to work, coming home, going to a meeting, going to the gym, and then coming home and having dinner and spending quality time with my family. I tried to balance mind, body, and spirit every single day because I truly believe that all three of them combined is is a is a great way to try to balance your life out. Um, well, sorry I'll, to interrupt you, but I think you're correct because we addiction is not just physical addiction; it's also spiritual and mental addiction as well. So you have to have all three of those aspects in. I agree with you completely. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of started. I'll be honest with you. I kind of started to get a little burnt out from going to a meeting every single day, and I kind of had to reel myself back in. I'm like, okay, I don't want to get burnt out by going to a meeting every day. So let me do four days a week. That way I know I have three days where I don't have to go to the meeting. So I'll go every other day. And then the other, every other day, I, when I didn't go to the meetings, I would go to the gym a little longer. Mm -hmm. And I felt that would start to really balance me out. Well, in the process of doing that, um, I, ha I have transformed my physical body to, I am in the best shape that I've ever been in. 
Oh, yeah. If I'm anybody in, doesn't believe it, go to his Facebook page. <laughs> I, I, I'm in better shape now than I was in the Marine Corps. I believe that. Um, Are you still working as a carpenter, Tim? I am, yes. Okay. I actually had to work, actually had to work this morning. Oh, okay. But, okay. But it was only for a couple of hours, so not a big deal. Um, but seriously, so, uh, Tim is on Facebook. Just look, just look for Tim Lodgen, L-O-D-G-E-N. And yeah, yeah, he's in really good shape. You're in really uh, good I, shape, Tim. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I, I have a really, I don't know if I, I have a huge following on Instagram at T Lodgen. Okay. Um, when I first started it, I had 350 followers and I just checked this morning. I'm at um, close to 92,000 followers on Instagram. Um, and that has truly been over the last 15 months of being sober and coming on podcast and sharing my story of, you know, not only mentally and spiritually, but physically and, um, how also changing my diet, eating healthier foods has helped me significantly. Um, when I went into rehab, I was 25 pounds overweight. My blood pressure was 167 over 135. Wow. My liver enzymes were four times what they should. Yep. And the, doc the doctor looked at me and he says, how old are you? I said, I'm 44. And he said, Tim, if you continue to drink like this, you're not going to see 47 years old. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're on the verge of having a stroke or a heart attack. And he said, and you're 44. I'm like, there's no way. He said, I'm looking at your results right now. He said, yes. So that was one of the things that happened to me in rehab that I was like, I'm definitely here right now at the right time in my life yep. to save it because I was slowly killing myself. Yep. And I saw it in the mirror, but I didn't want to see it. I right. ignored it. Right. I ignored it. And my addiction kind of made me feel like it was okay because you're not directly killing yourself. You're doing it slowly and you're just going to die one day in your sleep and yep. you're not going to feel it anyway. So, you know, no loss. No, I get it. So, I get it. Yeah. So the, that timing of, of me hitting those things in my truck, the timing of my friend calling me, the timing of going into rehab, it, it was my time. Yep. It was my time to get the help that I truly needed to save my life. Yep. And what I need people to understand is it came down to me. My wife couldn't have made me go to rehab. My mom couldn't have made me. My friend could have called me 20 times and asked me to go. Shit, he could have drove me to the rehab center and opened the front door. Yep. But it wasn't until my wife came down those basement steps and saw me standing on a bucket with a rope around my neck. And her tears in her eyes. And when she said, you know what this would do to your kids? Mm -hmm. Something hit me. And I was like, I, 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 I have to get help. Yep. I have to do this. I made the decision for myself. Yep. And I truly, truly believe when you make that decision for yourself, there's nothing that can stop you. Oh. Nothing stopped you from getting high or drunk or doing right. whatever you needed to do. That's when right. you finally make that decision for yourself to get the help that you need, you're unstoppable. That's right. I think I think it's I think it's such a powerful message. Tim, thank you for being willing to share your story with us. I know that stories of addiction are not necessarily um, like pleasant stories, but they, when you tell a story like yours, it resonates with someone who's listening. There's somebody who's listening that's going to listen to it. And they're going to want to get hope and they're going to reach out, get, get help. And they're going to want to reach out. And I, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you being clean and sober for 15 months. Very well done you. And thank you, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Well, thank you for allowing me to share my story because uh, helping one more is one less that we have to bury one less that we have to grieve over. The more people we can help, the more people we can save. Exactly. What a great interview. I hope that his story resonates with one of you who are listening. It's not a pretty story, but addiction isn't pretty. But he found his own point of no return, and he found a spiritual awareness that helped him in his recovery. And we hear that over and over again, whether it's Christianity, whether it's just, you know, spirituality with no name attached to it. 
he found it for himself and look at where he's at today. He's doing great. He does fitness. He does nutrition. He's on Facebook as Tim Lodgen, L-O-D-G-E-N. And he's on Instagram at T Lodgen, L-O-D-G-E-N. So you can follow him. You can find him on Facebook. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.